welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. I do still have a migration series lined up for you, but for the next few weeks, I'll be sticking to the Gaza war and putting out a variety of shows about Israel-Palestine. I'll be looking at the regional players in the Middle East, also different groups on the ground, different political actors. Um, In the last episode, I spoke to Ben White and Andrew Caddy about the origins of the Gaza war. In this interview, I'm instead looking at its potential trajectories. Now, to do so, I was joined by Gilbert Ashkar. Gilbert is Professor of Development Studies and International Relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He's also the author of numerous books, including Arabs and the Holocaust. And we spoke about an article he's recently published in New Lines magazine. That article is called Two Gaza Scenarios, Greater Israel versus Oslo. It's those two scenarios we're going to be talking about today. And it's a really great um, article. I do recommend you checking it out. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the pod and get access to bonus episodes, you can sign up for as little as £3 a month on Patreon. Um, That's at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Um, I'll also be sending out an edited transcript of this interview for Patreon subscribers. Do let me know if you find that useful so I can decide if it's worthwhile doing for future shows as well. Gilbert Ashkar, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you for inviting me. Um, And I wanted to talk through um, an excellent piece you did in New Lines magazine, talking both about what what Israel's endgame could be, what their strategy could be, and then the difficulties they're likely to face along the way. And I think your article started with some of the difficulties, so let's let's do that as well. Um, and it, you were talking about a ground invasion and why that might be particularly difficult for Israel. We've been hearing for a while now, and we're recording on the Thursday, the 26th of October, that Israel is ready to go for a ground invasion but keeps putting it off. And the point you made in the article is that for Israel, their tolerance for losses, even military losses, is very low. And you compared that to Russia, who sort of in their invasion of Ukraine have just sent loads and loads of military people forward, many of them to their deaths. Israel's unwilling to do that. Um, could you talk about why? Why is Israel so unwilling to to put lots of its military in harm's way? Well, on the other hand, it's a small country. It's a very small country. And uh, so the, the bonds between the people is very different than in a huge country like Russia, right? And there's also something related to history and to the rationale that was given for the creation of the Israeli state as a safe haven for for Jews. The government has to show that they value highly lives of their citizens and especially of their soldiers. I mean, you have to compare it maybe to to Western countries, uh, not to Russia. That is, the United States also is quite sensitive to the number, or, or Britain for that matter, the number of soldiers that get killed, you know, and they try to keep them very, very low to the point that we got into what an American analyst called many years ago, post-heroic wars. That is where you hardly have any engagement on the ground by by the troops. It's mostly remote uh, warfare and strikes at a distance. And they crush everything before getting in. We had a first illustration of that in Iraq in 1991. The first war on Iraq completely destroyed the country, completely destroyed the infrastructure. And they they carpet-bombed Iraqi troops that were at the, close to the border. 
before the incursion of the coalition led by the United States. So that's exactly what Israel is about to do. That is, especially that it's not a war in open air, semi-desertic land as you had in the Sinai Desert or in uh, on the Golan Heights. That's where the Israeli army is at its strongest because it has much more firepower, much more air force, than, than, than the rest. In built-up environments like Gaza, which is one of, the, one of the spots on Earth with the highest population densities, I mean, it's extreme, it's very crowded. So you have all these urban concentrations and invading such concentrations as they stand would be extremely, extremely costly in, in uh, soldiers' lives on the Israeli side. And that's why they are flattening the, 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 the whole area. I mean, the, the level of destruction is, is absolutely uh, huge. And the purpose for all that is to be able to invade with the minimum casualties on the Israeli side. The counterpart is that maximizes the casualties, and civilian casualties in particular, on the other side, on the Palestinian side, on the Gazan side. And that's why you have this number of, of killings, thousands upon thousands. We are already over 6,000, and who knows what the, the final number will be, but it will certainly be something. I mean, it's already appalling, but it's going to be even worse than that. I suppose the cost of this, this brutal air war, which doesn't put their soldiers in harm's way, but puts many, many civilians in harm's way, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me from their statements that they care particularly ethically when it comes to killing civilians. I suppose you could say that creates international pressure, but I'm leaving that as a bit of an open question because I'm not sure you know, how severe that pressure is. Do they care? Does Israel really care if they've got the UN General Secretary saying you are, you are bombing too many civilians and you're starting to hear some Western governments say, oh, you need to uh, humanitarian pause. Does, do they care or can they basically do what they want in that region? Well, you know, the, the UN General Secretary said that the Hamas operation didn't happen in a vacuum. And for that, he got Israel requesting his resignation from his post. They got completely furious about him saying that, uh, well, you have also to look at the fact that this operation, which he condemned in, in very clear terms, uh, but at the same time, he, he pointed to the ordeal of the Palestinians and the Gazans in particular, the, the ordeal they have been suffering now for, for so many years. It's, uh, it's, it's really, I mean, anyone who's been there will tell you uh, calling that an open-air prison is exactly what you feel what you, when you're there. So, no, I mean, the only things that Israel cares about is, is not Rishi Sunak you know, or, or whoever. It's Joe Biden. It's the United States, basically. Uh, that's the only country uh, whose opinion matters for, for the Israelis because they depend on, on the United States in many ways. And the United States funds the Israeli military, in part, of course, but it's Israel is the largest beneficiary of U.S. foreign aid, and by far, and especially military aid. They rely on the United States for possible protection in case of a regional conflagration, in case of a war with Iran, or you know, if it gets much larger, then they would have they would have great difficulty coping with it alone. And they would need the United States. And that's why the United States is sending all these forces 
to the vicinity of Israel, to the Eastern Mediterranean. So uh, that's the only opinion that really matters for them. And until now, the United States has all but condoned everything Israel is doing in, uh, or uh, looking at doing. And now you have a beginning of some tweak in the discourse saying, well, Israel has the right to defend itself. And we'll comment on this so-called right to defend itself of, of an occupying force. That's a, a real innovation in international law. But anyway, they, they have the right to defend themselves, but they must do that within the boundaries of international law. Well, that or it's already quite different from what they said at the beginning when they condoned the blatant violation of international law, the, the, the blatant war crime that is represented by the blockade. You know, when you, you cut off a whole territory with the 2.3 million people from uh, fuel, electricity, food, you are just uh, starving them. You are committing actually an absolutely huge war crime, which if it carries on, may become a crime against humanity. I mean, from the point of view of, of the scale of it, as you know, already some hospitals are no longer able to function. They don't have fuel and therefore can't work their generators to have electricity. And a hospital without electricity can't do much. So uh, until now, the, the, I mean, Western governments have been condoning that. They have, you have had even some kind of outbidding, which reached the grotesque with Emmanuel Macron going there and offering the Israelis that the anti-ISIS coalition should be engaged in the war against Hamas. It was so stupid. I mean, it's, even his own crowd, had his own foreign ministry, felt a need to, to say, well, that's not exactly what he meant. I mean, he meant uh, we should uh, take inspiration from or whatever. It's, it's rubbish. This guy was just offering the Israelis to, to join them in, in the war before he realizes that that was absolutely crazy. There is so much that reminds me of, of 9-11. And indeed, this comparison has been everywhere that this was Israel's 9-11. But there is another similarity with 9-11. And after mass of 9-11, I wrote a book, I published a book which is called The Clash of Barbarisms and the Making of the New World Disorder. And in that, the first chapter I called Narcissistic Compassion. And that was to show how much the deluge of support for the Americans, for the terrible thing that happened to America on 9-11. I mean, if you put it in terms of proportion of the number of people killed in that massacre of 9-11 and many other massacres over the world, including those that the United States committed, perpetrated itself in so many countries, you see a huge disproportion. And the fact is that you have an identification, you know, with the Americans in the Western media because they are like us and you identify with people like us and you feel much less for people not like us, brown, black, whatever they are. Sub-Saharan Africa, you can have millions dying in Congo. No one, no one cares. You, you hardly hear about that. I mean, nothing in the, in, in the media. All this, you know, confirms this famous speech by uh, the, the, the Martinican poet, Aimé Césaire. You know, he had this famous discourse on colonialism, a speech on colonialism. She was translated as Discourse on Colonialism, in which he says to the European bourgeois, the Western bourgeois, if you want, he says, 
what, what you blame Hitler for is not what he did to the human, is what he did to the white man. That's your problem. That's why it is, you are so concerned with what the Nazis... If the Nazis had done the same in sub-Saharan Africa than they did in Europe, I mean, you, you can be sure that the impact of all that would have been much, much less. So that's that's... We have to face it. That's how it functions, and that's rather ugly, of course, from the ethical point of view, because uh, real ethics uh, does not uh, make distinction between human beings, okay? And therefore, uh, you have had this uh, condoning until now by Western capitals. We'll have to see. They are actually worried about how this will go. They are already seeing that this piling up of bodies in Gaza is starting to have an impact on the public opinion in Western countries. Even people who believe that it is rightful for Israel to strike at Gaza would believe that, well, this is getting disproportionate. And therefore, we may hear a few things, but basically, when Western governments say, we support Israel in the goal of eradicating Hamas, well, you can't eradicate an organization that is rooted in a population of 2.3 million people without killing a big number of this population. And that means if they were to try to reach and finalize this kind of crazy goal, that could mean tens of thousands of people killed. That could mean a massacre of, of absolutely huge amplitude. I suppose we're already getting close to 10,000, aren't we? So we're going to be in, in, in those realms rather soon. L let's move on to talking about end games and, and what Israel might actually want out of this. Of course, that will be affected by the, the constraints we've just been talking about. So you sort of contrast what you call the greater Israel scenario with the Oslo scenario. So two possible outcomes, one based on negotiation of Oslo, one based on um, Israel just basically might re might make right, they get their way and they take over the whole of historic Palestine. Um, could you talk about the, the greater Israel scenario first? Yes, well, these are two extreme or two polar opposites of the kind of scenarios that you, you, you can find in Israel. And of course, the reality on the ground won't be any of them because it will be determined by, by a, a lot of other factors, especially their, their ability militarily to invade the, the Strip uh, fast enough because they, they have this issue with, uh, with public opinion and therefore governments, Western governments themselves, who may find themselves in a position where they need to exert pressure. But on the one hand, yes, you have the, the Zionist far right has always been in favor of greater Israel, that they, they were uh, quite unhappy. They criticized very much the, the mainstream leadership of the Zionist movement in 1948 when it uh, stopped the war after uh, seizing 78% uh, of the territory of Palestine between the sea and the Jordan River. They, they were allocated 55% by the UN. They seized 78% and stopped at that point which uh, left out Gaza, which was administered later by Egypt until 1967, and the West Bank, which was annexed by Jordan, both until 1967. So in 1967, the Israeli army invaded these two territories. And the Zionist far right, therefore, has been eager to secure long-term control 
annexation, actually, of these territory. And they were very active in the in building settlements, you know, and that that's a kind of uh, creeping annexation of these territories. And they managed to, to do that at a very high level in the West Bank. There were much less settlements in Gaza. And that's why it was possible for Ariel Sharon to withdraw, to evacuate Gaza. In So between 67 2005, you had Israeli troops in Gaza in control of the, the Strip, and they uh, evacuated it uh, in 2005 in order to control it completely from from without. So within that, that's how you have this, this kind of open-air prison. So... You have this Israeli far right are in favor of what they call transfer. And transfer is the forced expulsion of the Palestinians from their land. So it would be a continuation of the 1948 Nakba to the rest of the, Palest- of the territory of Palestine. In 48, this far right itself was instrumental in increasing the fleeing of the Palestinians they perpetrated the most infamous massacre of 1948 in Der Yassin, a Palestinian village of Der Yassin, when they, they killed a major part of the inhabitants. And this was perpetrated by the Likud ancestors, the groups that represent the same historical continuity of what is called revisionist Zionism, which is the far right of the Zionist movement, whose founder was an admirer of Mussolini. This is really the fascistic wing of the Zionist movement. And this has been the historical legacy, ideologically, of the Likud. And now the Likud is in alliance in government with even people who are even more to the right of that. People who an Israeli historian of the Holocaust did not hesitate to call neo-Nazis. And really, they are neo-Nazis, people with very clear, obvious, violent, racist views and not hidden. So this is the extreme. And when the Israeli army ordered the Palestinian population to evacuate the north of the Strip, to leave and go south, and when at the same time Israel was trying to convince Egypt to open its gates and to get those Palestinians onto Egyptian territory, Palestinians immediately remembered the Nakba. And indeed, you had already, you have already over one million people displaced just now because of since 7 October within the, the Gaza Strip, a huge displacement, pushing them towards the south. For now, it won't be possible for them to get them into Egypt because the Egyptians understood quite clearly what's was going on and, and and said no and refused so that they will need to keep them in a corner of, of the Gaza Strip. They are seeing, therefore, that the plan is to reoccupy the, the, the Strip under this pretext or, or this, this goal of eradicating Hamas, but with also this prospect of a, a permanent occupation, a permanent displacement, and therefore preparing the ground for an annexation in some way of a big part of that uh, territory to Israel. So that, that would be one polar, I mean, one maximum scenario on the one hand, on the far right hand. And Netanyahu has different, I mean, who's a basically very opportunistic person. But uh, he played on that very much in 2005. He had been defeated as leader of Likud 
he lost elections, as happens in this country, your party lose election, you change leader. He was leader of Likud, he lost election, he was replaced by Ariel Sharon, and then Ariel Sharon won the election in 2003. And then in 2005, the same Ariel Sharon decided to evacuate Gaza. That's to, just, just to be classed, to evacuate the settlers and the Israeli army, not, not evacuate Gaza or the Gazans, right? Yeah, no, no, to evacuate the, the Israeli, I mean, Israeli evacuation from Gaza, yes. Yeah. And the reason for that was that the, the military was requesting that, or demanding that, because the cost of controlling such a densely populated area was quite heavy, and that was exhausting for the, the Israeli military. So they wanted to evacuate, to, to withdraw from the Strip, which Sharon accepted, his goal being the annexation of most of the West Bank. He wasn't interested in Gaza. I mean, Gaza has much less ideological importance, biblical or religious importance, even the Zionist uh, religious right. So Nyahu seized upon the, the, the opportunity to fight against Sharon, to denounce Sharon, condemn him for that, and he, he managed to practically kick him out. I mean, Sharon uh, left the party, quit, quitted uh, on that same year, 2005, and Netanyahu came back to the helm. So you see that he caters to this far-right opinion, and uh, as the opportunity, the opportunity is, he, he can seize or adapt to, to this kind of perspective. But ultimately, he will do what the circumstances on the ground will dictate. And in terms of sort of a scenario by which they would make that happen, sort of expelling people to Egypt. So, I mean, initially it seemed like they wanted just to get that done really quickly. Though. This is the pretext we've needed, you know, the 7th of October attacks, the pretext we need, let's just do it really quickly and then sort of apologise for it afterwards. That didn't work because Egypt said no. In terms of the scenario which I was reading about this morning, it was from an is Israeli newspaper, I can't remember exactly which one, was to say what they are going to try and do now, or one theory as to what the Israelis might try and do now, is provoke a storming of the Rafah crossing. So even if Egypt says people can't come through, you create humanitarian conditions which are so poor in Gaza and you bunch people up in the south that eventually you get this sort of public upswell of people so desperate to get across the border, they basically push through. And then at that point in time, you pay the Egyptians loads of money to say, can you keep these Gazans there? Um, I, I, I don't quite know if that sequence of events sounds plausible to me, but I wanted to sort of get your your thoughts on, on whether that could be an end game that Israel has in mind? Well, if they, if they keep bombing people, even in the south of Gaza, as they have been doing, they would, might create a situation where you would have that kind of scenario. But the Egyptians would be extremely irritated about that, and this could lead to a complete deterioration of their relation or a break in their relation with the Israeli state. The Egyptian president warned them, explaining that, look, if we had Palestinian refugees on our border, they would certainly organize operations against you and we'll get in a cycle in which we will get to war. So he's saying, look, don't do that because this will completely spoil our relations, basically. That's the message. Um, 
and he 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 said uh, well if if as you pretend it's just a matter of providing them with temporary shelter you know just uh, why don't you send them to your territory he said in the negev the semi desertic part of of israel uh, why don't you send them there you know so no the egyptian will do whatever they can to prevent this kind of flood of of people into their territory for the reasons we know i mean they know that that might be permanent they 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 don't believe that this will be temporary and then people will be allowed to return they see that 48 scenario 1948 i mean people left their homes they took their keys with them and you know, they're confident that they will be back once the, the war stops so as in any war if you are in a war zone and you're a civilian, families and things like that, you leave the war zone. Yeah? You take refuge somewhere else until it stops and then you get back. Except that Palestinians, 80% of those who lived in those territories, which the Israeli state built upon in 1948, 80% of the Palestinians fled and were never allowed to return. And I think from from my perspective, the message from Sisi to say, if, if we let in a lot of Palestinians, some of them will start operations against Israel and that could draw Egypt into war. That seemed to me more a message to, say, the Americans and the Europeans and the Israelis, because I'm not sure how scared of a war with Egypt the Israelis are. But if Egypt enters a war with Israel, potentially loses, that's a country of 110 million people. If that has state collapse, then you're looking at you know a, a migrant crisis in Europe, which is way beyond the scale of anything we've we've seen before and complete chaos in the Middle East. Yeah, well, he, he made these remarks in the presence of Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, when this, he was visiting Cairo. So that, yeah, it's a message to the Europeans, a message to the Americans, a message to the whole world, and a message to the Egyptians, by the way, also, explaining that you would have a consensus. The Egyptians understanding that this is the Israeli goal are not demanding that their borders be open to the Palestinian refugees. Because of that, they see that that would uh, facilitate the expulsion of the Palestinians and the making of a second Nakba. Let's talk about your your second sort of scenario, or the, you know, as you say, it's sort of a a polar scenario. It's not likely to happen, but it's sort of a a trajectory um, that some in Israeli civil society and the international community would would like to see. And you say it's something along the lines of, of the Oslo track, which was, you know, the Oslo Accord signed in 1993 to put Israel and Palestine on a path to a two-state solution. Obviously, it failed quite spectacularly in around 2000. I suppose I was interested to see you sort of put that as a as a possible scenario here, because the what most people seem to say about Oslo is it's dead, you know, finished, done. There is no two-state solution. You still don't think that there is, you know, that idea isn't quite dead. Oh, uh, in the mind of Western uh, leaders, no, it's not dead. They want to believe that it is still alive, that it is just stored in some way, and it can be revived. And they certainly blame uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli right wing, represented by Netanyahu, for blocking that. And they know that. I mean, Netanyahu, it's no secret for anyone that he this prospect of a so-called Palestinian state is something that he doesn't buy at all. And he has been accused, and rightly so, of playing Hamas against the Palestinian Authority, cultivating the division between the two territories uh, in order to prevent any kind of pressure on him for a Palestinian state and moving forward with the Oslo track and, and things like that. 
So basically, what they believe in Washington is uh, that you can revive this and get some kind of deal if you have uh, Gaza plus parts of the West Bank, those that are controlled by the Palestinian Authority presently, and you do some uh, territorial swap, as for instance, you found in the plan that Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, elaborated and that was called the so-called peace plan. And where you see that there are parts of Negev Desert that are given to the Palestinians in exchange for actually much better in terms of geography, parts of the West Bank, you know, where you have the settlers. So they, wouldn't, uh, they want to, to keep the settlers there. A next part, or a big part of the West Bank, and create a so-called Palestinian state which would be a kind of patchwork of territories. Of course, this wouldn't be anything other than a rump state, a fiction, actually, a fictional state. And calling that an independent Palestinian state is a joke. But that's the plan. That's what they would like to, to be able to do in order to say, well, we solved the Palestinian question. No more Palestinian cause, and you, we can proceed forward with the a great collaboration between uh, the between Israel and the and the Arab uh, and the Arab states. That's what they would wish, and therefore, what would that mean for for Gaza? That would mean that the the, the Israeli army uh, invades Gaza, eradicates Hamas, and which is the big question mark actually about the ability of doing that, and then hand it over to Mahmoud Abbas to the Palestinian Authority that is uh, headquartered in Ramallah the West Bank. So that's a kind of rewind to the original Oslo agreement, which started with Gaza and Jericho, the first territory which was uh, uh, offered to the the PLO in 19, I mean, 94, after the Oslo agreements was Gaza. Gaza plus the city of Jericho, the town of Jericho in the West Bank. And that was a, a feeler. Jericho was a feeler for the rest of the West Bank. And how it so they wanted to see how the PLO, which was headed by Arafat at the time, would would behave in controlling Gaza. And when they got some confidence at this level, they enlarged the areas that were given to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. So going back to that and re-put this Palestinian Authority in charge of the West I mean, those parts of the West Bank and, and Gaza, is the way that they see the possibility to proceed forward. Now, how would they hand over the control of Gaza to the Palestinian Authority? You had an interesting input about that by Ehud Barak, who was former prime minister and former head of the the Israeli armed forces also. He, he gave an interview some days ago where he explained if the Israeli army were to hand over Gaza to the Palestinian Authority, that would look very bad for the Palestinian Authority. So we need some kind of, of scenario that would blur the lines. So he had this idea of bringing in Arab troops temporarily, and then those Arab troops, once in charge there, would hand it over to the Palestinian authorities. We would have a transition with Arab troops instead of having Israeli troops bringing on on the back of their tanks the Palestinian authority into Gaza. I mean, all these are scenarios. Really, for now, this is political fiction. We are in very fictional views, and what will happen on the ground may 
lead to quite different realities. We'll have to see. But yes, these are the, the polar scenarios, if you want. Uh, one which is favored by the United States and part of the opposition in Israel uh, would, would see things in the same way. I just mentioned Ehud Barak. And the other is favored by the, Israel, by the Zionist far right. So between these two poles, what will happen on the ground, we will see. Well, it's also interesting, I suppose, because it's not necessarily just sort of finding somewhere between the poles, because as you say in your article, both of your poles actually require the defeat of Hamas. Yes. So either you defeat Hamas and then kick everyone out of, of Gaza, or you defeat Hamas and, and then put the Palestinian Authority in control of Gaza and then restart the peace process. But it, it seems to me that even the Israeli side now are sort of starting to come to terms with the fact that destroying Hamas is somewhat unrealistic. And they are now putting out this idea as in the FT last Friday, I think, where they were saying what we want to do is cut the umbilical cord to Gaza. So sort of cut off Gaza even more than it was before, potentially clear some buffer zone between Gaza and, and Israel, presumably, you know, so it's harder for rockets to reach Israeli towns and villages, obviously much harder to ever break through the fence. If there's a big gap yeah. between two fences, you're sort of thinking Berlin Wall style here, aren't you? And then essentially leave Gaza to its own devices what do you think of that possibility? I mean, I can't imagine that involving a lifting of the siege because they wouldn't want Hamas yeah. to be getting ever more powerful rockets. So that's probably just going to be a smaller Gaza, which is under an even tighter siege than it has been for the past 17 years. Yes. I mean, the military have a minimal plan. I mean, they understand that those grand scenarios are predicated on, on the eradication of Hamas and they know that that won't be easy, even, even though... They are speaking now of several months of war. So they are looking at long-term things. Whether Israel will be able to wage a war for several months is a very big question. It never happened. And I, I really have difficulty seeing that happening. And especially you also have the, interna the international factor. You have the, the Western pressure and the international pressure and the rest. So, so their minimal kind of... Uh, face saving if you want end game would be this uh, idea of a, of a extended uh, buffer zone uh, inside gazan territory so further reducing the territory of gaza that wouldn't be to to prevent rockets because rockets uh, won't be prevented by a few more kilometers it's uh, to prevent an operation like say, 7 october an incursion of troops or fighters from gaza beyond the fence. So they have this kind of scenario, and you can call it a third scenario if you want, which would be turning Gaza into even worse prison than it has been. It would be a kind of, of open-air concentration camp. We have to, to use the, the, the term. If it goes like this, we're under blockade and all that, this would be horror, just horror. So yes, would involve a lot of destruction, but much less risk-taking by the Israeli military in trying to invade all these urban concentrations. I suppose, you know, we've been talking about the room for maneuver or what Israel might want and how they might get it, what limitations they might face. I suppose Israel was taken by surprise here. So they are, to some degree, making up their strategy on the hoof as they go. Hamas had warning. You know, it seems like this, this, this attack had been planned for a while. Are we any wiser yet as to what their strategy was, what they were expecting Israel to do, what they want Israel to do, how they think that they or the Palestinian people might be able to, to benefit from the crisis 
or you know, obviously there was a crisis before October the 7th, but this immediate conflagration that they've sort of created. Well, it's really difficult to tell at the present, but you have a lot of speculation about what Hamas had in mind when launching this operation. You have even speculation about the fact that they were not expecting this result and that initially their operation was targeting military posts and the rest, and they were themselves surprised by, by how easy it turned out for them to get into, I mean, beyond that fence, across that fence, and therefore they were able to move beyond the fence at a much faster rate than what they had expected. And therefore, this invasion of civilian areas, basically, and, and instead of just clashing with uh, military outposts. Well, everything is possible. I mean, that's why I'm saying it's difficult to say now, because those who, who planned this and led the execution are in Gaza, and you won't hear from them now under the present circumstances. But the, the point is that Hamas has also what I called, in peace of mind, some degree of magical thinking. Don't forget that this is a religious fundamentalist organization. And the belief that God is with them is there, you know. And they behave sometimes as if they don't have a, a serious calculation of, of what the consequences of what they are doing may be. Or they give the impression that uh, they don't care a lot about such consequences. But uh, probably, I mean... Had they imagined that this would lead to this kind of reaction from Israel, I'm not sure that they would have uh, done it uh, in the way it was done. So that's why there is some credit to the speculation about the fact that they were not, I mean, expecting that October 7 would turn out to be what, what it turned out to be, you know. In, in May 21, you had beginning of an uprising, a beginning of an antifada in the West Bank around the issue of Jerusalem. And that was basically stopped by Hamas joining the fray and launching rockets, calling that Al-Aqsa shield. Always this obsession with Al-Aqsa. So again, they named this October 7, Al-Aqsa flood. So again, a reference to the mosque in Jerusalem. So you see the religious framework again. And so they launched all these rockets. The, the result was the Israelis went into a wild reaction of, of bombing Gaza and also turning very violent in the West Bank. And even you had even within the pre-67 territory, some clashes with Palestinian citizens of Israel. So it's really difficult to, to, to tell. I mean, rationally, uh, they are in a uh, uh, competition with the Palestinian Authority. They, therefore want to assert themselves as the leadership of the Palestinian struggle. And uh, most of, I mean, all, all what they, they do in terms of clashes with Israel is within this framework. But to do that at, at the cost of the, the destruction of Gaza and uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people killed by the Israelis in retaliation, that really is very poor, I mean, to, to be euphemistic, very poor calculation. Gilbert Ashkar, that was incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for your insight on the conflict and, and where it might go next. Thank you. You've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. 
Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. <laughs>